This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for Igeret HaTshuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page 1015, so tonight is the night after Chav Kislev the day of liberation of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. And this year is very special, extra special, because in a few weeks from now, it will be the 200th yard site of the Alter Rebbe. 200. 200 years ago. So this is a very intense, very powerful. And uh, the Tanya is about to explode <laughs> on the scene. And uh, every Jew will be studying Tanya will discover the time. It's a, it's a discovery. It's a treasure to be discovered, to be savored, to be every morsel and every word and every chapter and every bit of it. It's just delightful and and really our life depends on it because it's so. Uh, it makes us it makes us into hungry Jews. Hunger for godliness, hunger for Hashem, hunger for Torah. And lights the fire inside of us. You know, you can tell a difference. A Jew who studies Tanya is on fire. A Jew who studies Tanya as if his life depends on it is on fire. And a Jew who doesn't study Tanya, doesn't appreciate the Tanya, the fire is buried, submerged. And you don't see that. And it's that fire that changes the world. It's that fire that changes us. When a person is on fire, it's like the famous story with the, uh, locks, the uh, ironsmith who he had uh, someone apprenticing. He had a student who was apprenticing with him and he was teaching him all the tricks of the trade. And the apprentice goes home and he tries to, uh, tries to forge the metal and the different metals and without any success. comes rushing back to his teacher. He says, I don't understand. I tried everything and it's not working. The teacher said, did you light a fire? <laughs> Without the fire, nothing happens. You can have all the skills and all the expertise in the world, but if you have no fire, nothing is going to bend, nothing is going to melt, nothing is going to... There's no movement, there's no change. Chassid, this is the fire. This is our fire. This is the Tanya. So, a person who cherishes the Tanya is on fire. And that's the only thing that's going to change. It's not how sophisticated you are and how expert you are and how technically savvy you are, that's not that soulless. It's the neshama, it's the soul, and the soul is on fire. This is what changes lives, this is what changes our lives, this is what changes the lives of those around us, this is what elevates us, this is what transforms and makes life worth living. So this is our fire. And that fire only intensifies with the passing of time. With each passing year, the tanya, the fire, becomes more powerful and more powerful, and especially 200 years, you just imagine the power of this fire. We are in chapter, also tonight we start saying the same Talamata, we switch from the same Brach in the evening service and we start praying the same Talamata. Starting tonight, we start praying for rain. Which signifies the winter. Now we're starting with the winter. With the winter now is a time when you got to keep yourself warm, you got to light, you got to keep yourself warm. In the summer, Hashem keeps us warm, brings the sun out. But now we got to keep ourselves warm and that's what Hasidus is. Hasidus is in the winter, in the darkness of exile, in the cold, dark exile. And this is a time when we have to put the wood in the fireplace and we got to take that rigid wood and transform it into energy, take matter and turn it into energy and turn it into a piece of fire. And that's what keeps us warm. So we're in chapter 11, talking about Shuva. Spiritual chapter 11. And he finished explaining on page 1115 on the top, and he finished explaining how a Jew has confidence 
every day, three times a day, we ask Hashem for forgiveness for the very same sin that we just finished asking forgiveness for. And yet we're so confident that Hashem is going to forgive us. Instantly, on the spot. If we ask sincerely. And to Hashem, Hashem doesn't grow tired. Hashem, it's a brand new energy. Every moment, three times a day, He forgives us the thousandth time. As if He's forgiving us for the very first time. There's no difference. To infinity, a million, a zillion, one, it's all the same. Hashem doesn't grow tired. And we don't exhaust His capacity for forgiveness. As long as we're sincere. And he says it's not a joke. It's not like we're, this is a game. Let me ask forgiveness. I'll obtain forgiveness. And then I'm going to go back and sin. No problem. I'll ask forgiveness again. I'll get forgiveness and I'll sin again. So it's like making a mockery of this whole forgiveness. And if you make a mockery of forgiveness, just like if a person says, I will sin, and then I'll do teshuvah. So in heaven they won't enable you to, to, to do teshuva, to repent. Because it's the teshuva that causes you to sin. You take the whole thing lightly. Oh, what's the big deal? Let me have my cake and eat it too. Let me have fun. Let me sin. And then I'll take care of business. I'll do teshuva. What's the big deal? So it's the teshuva that's enabling you to sin. Without the teshuva, without that way out, that exit, you would never have sinned. So it's, if the tshuva is a cause for sin, then tshuva can't come to your rescue. Tshuva can't be used to help you when tshuva is what caused you your downfall in the first place. So in that case, when you're making a mockery of the whole tshuva, tshuva can't help you. So too here, it seems, superficially, it's the same thing. That the fact that you're relying on the fact that Hashem is going to forgive you, and you continuously ask Hashem for His forgiveness, and that's why I'm sinning. So it's not serious. So how can I, why would Hashem forgive me if I'm making a mockery of the whole thing? And he says, no, it's not a mockery. You are sincere. As a matter of fact, you pray, please return me to a complete teshuvah. If it was up to me, I would like to change my life. I would like to be perfect. I believe in perfection. I believe in that possibility. I hope for it. I yearn for it. I'm trying my best. I'm human. And I'm limited. And I stumble. But I don't give up. I don't throw in the towel. This is more impressive. It's one thing for Hashem, who's infinite, who doesn't stop forgiving us. And He forgives us the thousandth time with the same freshness and and vigor and excitement like He forgives us the first time. Because to infinity, there's no difference, one in a thousand. But for us human beings, to fail every day, three times a day, and to pick ourselves up and to sincerely cry out to Hashem and say, Hashem, please forgive me. Please, I want to change. And if I had the strength, I would change permanently. I don't want to stumble, and I don't want to sin. And I don't want to behave in a negative way. I want to live up to your expectations, to God's expectations. I want to live up to your expectations of us, which are very high. Hashem expects a lot of us. He believes in us. He has confidence in us. And I, we want to live up to your trust in us. So please, if it was up to me, I hope, I hope I'll never do this again. So that's as sincere as it gets. The fact that three times a day you're asking for forgiveness with a broken heart and that you mean it and you're trying to change. That's so sincere. That's so genuine. You're not making a mockery of it. This is as real as it gets. On the contrary, you still have hope. You still believe in redemption. You still believe in the possibility of redemption, personal redemption, which leads to general redemption, collective redemption. You believe in the possibility of wholeness and perfection, despite all the evidence to the contrary, from your own personal experience. Look how defective you are. Look how you stumble. Look how imperfect you are. And that's an understatement. And nevertheless, you still believe in that possibility. You still believe in the Torah. And you still believe in that way of life which seems impossible to us, which seems to elude us, which seems like so beyond us. And yet, you, every, you keep on trying. You pick yourself up three times a day and you, you go forward. You don't let it get you down. You don't let it depress you. You don't let it stop you. So this is genuine. This is not a mockery. It's not the same case of the, in the case where the Jew says, I will sin and then I'll do tshuva. Then you're making a mockery. Then it's the sin that's causing you to, it's the truth that's causing you to sin. Because you have that, 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 that uh, way out. 
So therefore, you're relying on the truva, and therefore you're going ahead and sinning. Then you're making a mockery of the truva, and the truva can't help you, or the truva Hashem won't enable you to do the truva. And even in that case, if you push yourself in, this, nevertheless, despite the fact that in heaven they're not helping you to truva, if you push yourself in and do truva, there's nothing in the world that can stop and get in the way of the truva. Truva helps in any case. How much more so in our case where there's no mockery? You're not making any mockery. You're pleading. Please, Hashem. Return me to complete the shuva, the perfect shuva. Now, I'm trying, I'm sincere, I hope I'll never fail again, I'll never stumble ever again. Okay, so that point he clarified very, explained it very well. Now, he's addressing another issue. King David writes, Psalm 51, which we say before we go to bed, at night, in the Shema, in the evening, we go to bed. And King David says that my sin, King David's sin with Bathsheba is always before me. So here we're saying that a Jew should be joyful. Even though you sin, you should ask for forgiveness and have trust and confidence that immediately Hashem is going to forgive you. So much so that he starts out at the beginning of the chapter that it's possible for a Jew to be joyful and to be sad at the same time. Why am I joyful? Because I'm confident, I have full trust and confidence that God is going to forgive me. And that my sins will be turned around into something positive. And that's why I'm joyful. And yet King David made a point of emphasizing and saying, my sin is always in front of me. I'm always reminded of my sin. My failure is always before me. I never let myself forget my failures my vulnerability, my failings. Well, that's not a reason to joy, for, for joy. That, that's a reason for feeling sad and bitter. That's a, a, reason, that's a reason to suppress, to depress my feelings, not to elevate me to a feeling of joy. And here we're saying that a Jew should feel confident. God has forgiven us and move on. Don't dwell, don't harp on the negative. Don't dwell on the negative. Move on. Move forward. Hashem has surely forgiven you. You have to have trust and faith that Hashem has surely forgiven you because you ask sincerely and move on with your life and now be joyful. King David is saying, no, I can never move on. It's always hanging right in front of me. My, my negativity is always hanging in front of me. It's always in front of me. But I can't pretend that I didn't fail you. My failure is always there. So if my failure is always there, how can I be joyful? If I'm constantly reminded, if it's hanging right in front of me, and I'm constantly reminded and reminding myself of my failure. You tell, it's the exact opposite. Not Hashem has forgiven me and I'm moving on. The negativity has been transformed into positive. You tell me, no, no matter what happens, the rest of your life, 24-7, your sin is hanging right in front of me. If I can't move on, I can never move on. What a depressing thought. Because I can't change. No matter what, no matter what happens, the sin, the failure is always right in front of me. I'm always reminded of it. King David says, Vachatasim, my sin, negative summit is always before me. And my heart is broken. So it's the exact opposite of joy. So how do you reconcile this two? Here we make a blessing. Thank you, Hashem, for forgiving us. And we're supposed to feel good and joyful. And yet here, the sin is constantly dangling in front of me. Constant reminder of my failure. So the Rebbe will explain and answer this question. As to the verse that says, my sin is always before me, this does not imply that one ought to be constantly melancholy and humiliated. God forbid. For later verses declare, let me hear gladness and joy and uphold me with the spirit of magnanimity. Moreover, throughout one's day, one should experience tshuva ila, a manner of repentance that is marked by great joy as noted above. How then are we to understand that my sin is always before me? In that very uh, chapter of Tehillim, a few verses later, 
David and Melech is saying, please let me hear gladness and joy. So David is seeking out gladness and joy. So the fact that his sin is dangling in front of him does not lead him to melancholy and to sadness. On the contrary, it leads him to joy. How is that possible? How can having your sin and your failure dangling in front of you, a constant reminder, how can that lead you to joy? Rather, the term used for before me is specifically negdi, which implies being opposite, but at a certain distance. As in the verse that says, you shall stand at a distance, neged, or at a distance, neged, around the tent of assembly shall they camp. Starts out with a verse from Samuel, and he ends up with a verse from Numbers, from the Torah, the five books of Moses. Usually when you're bringing a proof, where do you bring a proof first from? First, the five books of Moses, the Torah. Then you go searching in the book of prophets. Here's the exact opposite. He starts out with a book in prophets, in Samuel. What's the prophet talking about? The prophet is talking about when Avshalom, King David's son, rebelled against his father. And the forces of King David led by Yoav, Yoav ben Truya, Joav, King David's nephew, met, confronted Avshalom and his forces, and King David begged and pleaded, because whatever happens, don't kill my son. Capture him, but don't kill him. And then um, Avshalom was running, and his hair got caught in the branches, and he was hanging suspended from the tree. His horse ran away, his mule, his horse, and he was left hanging. The scout comes to Yoav, the head of King David's army, and says, the rebel, the son, is hanging. He's suspended in heaven and earth. He's hanging from a tree. So Yoav and Surya says, go, go kill him. He says, I'm not going to kill him. King David says, don't kill him. The king says, don't kill him. And then he says, you're going to stand at a distance. When the king is going to ask me and question me, and he's going to interrogate me, he says, why did you kill him? You're not going to stand in my defense. You're not going to stick up for me. You're not going to say, I told him to kill him. And I was the commander of the army, and he's my soldier, and I told him to kill him. He had to listen to me. You're going to run away. You're going to hide. You're going to leave me stranded. So it's very nice of you to tell me to kill him. Nice order. But you're going to hang me to dry. You're going to hang me dry. You're not going to stand up for me when, when, the, when, the, when, the, uh, when the heat is turned on me. And the king is going to demand why I disobeyed his explicit order. So what do we see from there? We see from there, we find different times in the Torah. Sometimes mineged means next to me. Sometimes, minagin means from a distance. It depends on the content. So from the case of Samuel, we see that minagin means it's a distance. You're going to stand far from me. Not you're going to stand next to me, and you're going to be my advocate and my lawyer and stick up for me for the king. You're going to run away from me. You're going to distance yourself from me. So we see that minagin means distance. And the second proof he brings from Numbers, that it says that the, the assembly shall assemble, shall be around the tent, but at a distance from the tent. So they shouldn't come close to the tent, they shouldn't enter the tent, with the, tent the, the tabernacle, the, the, in the desert. When the Jews camped around the desert, they were at a distance, because the Levites were right around it, and the Jewish people were at a distance from the tent. So he says, me neged. Me neged means, and then he brings Rashi. Rashi defines... Rashi defines the above term literally opposite as, quote, at a distance. Thus one should always retain an awareness of his having sinned, but at a distance, i.e. at the back of his mind. So Rashi says, Rashi says, me neged, me it actually is telling us that the word neged means distance. May neged means from a distance. That the word neged itself could mean distance. Me neged means from a distance. 
But he brings a proof from Shmuel. He starts out with a proof from Shmuel. Because there, the effect, the fact that it was distant, had an impact on the behavior of the soldier. The soldier was telling Yoav, he was telling Yoav that because you're going to be distant from me, you're not going to be there for me, you're not going to stand next to me, instead you're going to stand apart from me, you're going to distance yourself from me, therefore it's going to affect my behavior, therefore I'm not going to kill the king's son, I'm not going to kill the rebel, because of the fact that you're not going to be there for me. So it had a direct impact on him. He's trying to tell us also that here, when King David says, V'chatosim my sin negdi, negdi doesn't mean next to me, close to me, it means distant from me. But yet, although it's distant from me, it has to have an effect on me. The fact that my sin is constantly in front of me, it's distant from me, but close enough that I can see it, but it's distant. So it has an impact on me. Just like when the soldier told Yoav that because you're going to be distant from me, it had an impact on his behavior. So too, the fact that my sin is distant from me, but it's in front of me, although distant, it's going to have an impact. And he's going to explain in a minute what's the positive impact. Even the joyful impact of the fact that my failure, my sin, is always distant from me, is, is opposite from me. Not close enough that it should depress me. It should demoralize me. Because that's not the point. The point is I should be joyful. A Jew has to be joyful. You have to reach the level of joy. You have to have confidence and trust that Hashem has forgiven me and wiped away my sin and, and it's all forgotten and forgiven and I can move on. It can't paralyze me. I can't allow my failures to paralyze me. If we're going to harp on our failures, we won't move. We'll be paralyzed. We might as well quit while we're behind We'll be stuck. We'll go backwards. It has to be distant. We have to keep it at an arm's length. It's not in front of me. In front of me, I'm filled with the trust in Hashem and the confidence in Hashem that Hashem has forgiven me and wiped away my sin and my negative. It's been turned into positive and I'm joyful and I'm getting close to Hashem. And it's, it's a joyful experience. But nevertheless, there is something positive about it having that failure distant from me. But it should be in the background of my awareness. I should always be aware. In the distant awareness, I should always have in the background, like background noise. It's important to have that background awareness, that context, that I did fail. And it's something positive. It will lead to something positive. What's the positive What's the positive thing it can lead to? Hence the intention of our verse is merely that one's heart should not grow haughty and that he be humble of spirit before all men. Because there will be a remembrance between his eyes that he has sinned before God. So he's saying the positive thing that will, the effect, the positive effect of having that background memory of remembering our failures is that it won't allow us to become arrogant. It won't allow us to become haughty because we are so prone we can switch. We can be brokenhearted. How many people you find that start out very poor and brokenhearted and then God smiles on them and they become successful? And they lose their humanity. They become arrogant. They become stuffy. They become stuck up. And they immediately forget their humble beginnings. And suddenly they can't talk to the simple person because I'm here and you're, you're nobody. You forgot that yesterday you were also a nobody. That part they forgot. It gets to your head. It gets to your mind. Success gets to your head. It's the rear individual that success doesn't get to your head. Only Yaakov Avinu said, I feel humbled by all the kindness that you've showered on me and all the success that I've had. It didn't get to my head. If anything, it made Yaakov even more humble. But that's rear. What a rear quality. Those type of people here on the Upper East Side whose success and not get to their head, you can count on your hands, on one hand. It's such a rear quality for a person not to forget his humble beginnings and that doesn't allow his success to affect them, affect how they look at people, not to look down at anyone. And, and it just doesn't get to their head. They don't become arrogant and impossible and, and uh, you know, 
take themselves so seriously. And so this is very beneficial. If a person will remember your humble beginnings. Remember your failure. Keep it, yeah, keep it distant. Fill your life with trust and hope and confidence and joy. And, but, but keep it in the background. Keep it in the distance. Remember your humble beginnings. Don't, don't let your success get to your head. And the question is, why do we have to tell this to the Baltruva? How about the Tzaddik? The Tzaddik who never sinned, maybe he's more likely to become arrogant than haughty. He never had a breakdown in his life. He never had a broken heart. He grew up in the straight and the narrow. Everything was smooth. He was bathed in light from the moment he was born. He never was really touched by the darkness. If anything, maybe the tzaddik needs to, to, um, to make sure that he doesn't become arrogant and haughty. Why are we telling this to the Baltruva? Why does King David say that only the Baltruva, because I sin, I have to make sure that I shouldn't become arrogant? Why is the fact that I failed, that's a reason I should become arrogant? Only because my, I did Truva, my sin is forgiven. So now I have a clean slate. So how about the one who never sinned? Surely he, also, surely he has to be careful not to become arrogant. Why specifically, why does the Baltruva need greater protection? than the tzaddik. And the answer is because in a certain sense the baltruva is greater than the tzaddik. The fact that the baltruva is a survivor, the fact that the baltruva went to hell and came back alive and intact in one piece, the fact that he sinned and the sins were forgiven and as a result the sins have been transformed into mitzvot, the negativity has been transformed into positive, the bitterness has been transformed into sweetness, the darkness into light, in a certain sense he is greater than the tzaddik. Much greater than the tzaddik. So therefore, there's reason for the Baltruva to become more arrogant. Look what a special place I'm in. Look how dark I was. Look how far I was. Now look how far I've become. I've totally transformed my life. I've turned my life around. The tzaddik doesn't even hold a candle to the Baltruva. Can't even come close. Can't even approach. The intensity and the depth of the relationship that the Baltruva has to Hashem turned his life around. He's been tested and proven and he's come out with flying colors. He's much stronger than the tzaddik. So for that reason, it's the Baltruva who's in danger, who's, as a, who's in a greater risk of becoming arrogant because he has reason why. He has riches that the tzaddik will never know. So he can become haughty. He can get to his head. I'm a Baltruva. <laughs> You grew up in the straight and narrow. You were bathed in light. What do you know? I was in darkness. And look, I've turned my life around. Look how powerful I am. You don't even hold a candle to me. So the Baltruva is in greater danger of becoming haughty and arrogant. That's why King David says, Always keep in your background. Keep that context. Where you're coming from. Remember where you're coming from. Remember your failure. So don't let your success, and it is success, and it is tremendous success, and it's something to, to go to town with. But you have to be humble. Don't let it get to your head. Because that ruins everything. Pride ruins everything. We say in prayer, we say, remove the satan from before me and remove the satan behind me. What do you mean remove the satan behind me? Remove the satan before me. We understand the satan is in the way. It stops me, it blocks me, it doesn't allow me to do good deeds. It's trying to prevent me from doing good deeds. But what do you mean I'm going forward and the satan is behind me? The answer is because once a person does a good deed, and especially if it was difficult for him to do a good deed, then he gets a sense of satisfaction, self-satisfaction. Ah, look how great I am. I'm unbeatable. I'm unstoppable. Look how spiritually powerful I am. That's the satan. A, the satan tries to stop you. That's the satan is in front of me, creating an obstacle, not allowing me to go forward. When the satan sees he can't beat me, I'm going forward anyway. The satan says, I'll still get you. When you look back and you say, ah, look how great I am. You ruined everything. <laughs> that moment of arrogance, that moment of pride, you destroyed everything. You took this delicious delicacy, this delicious dish, and you just ruined it. You're about to serve it to your guest, to your host. 
the servant to Hashem, this delicacy, this delicious dish, you overcame obstacles, you overcame negativity, you are Baal look how far you've come, and Hashem has forgiven you, and, and all of a sudden you have this feeling of arrogance, and, and holier than thou, and arrogance, and you've ruined everything, you destroyed everything. So the Baal needs to be more careful than the Tzadik, because he has reason to be arrogant. You have to nip it in the bud. And the way to nip it in the bud is by keeping it at a distance, not in front of you. You can't fill your life. You can't be morose and you can't be depressed and demoralized and paralyzed. You have to be uplifted and joyful and that's the positive energy. That's, what's, that's what you're looking for. But in order to make sure that you shouldn't become arrogant, shouldn't get to your head, keep the failures in your background. Just keep it in front of you. And that will keep you real. Keep you humble. When, when, you, when you suffer from self-inflation, when you suffer from an inflation, runaway inflation, self-inflation, it brings you back down to earth. keeps you real. That's one positive thing. In fact, as far as joy is concerned, the remembrance of one's past sins will be especially effective in encouraging happiness in the face of whatever misfortunes there so when a person feels it's not fear, why am I afflicted, why do I have all these aggravations and these inconveniences, and why am I not successful, and what's going on? But when you remember your sin, and you remember the sins of your past, and you know that part of an atonement, it's a sign that God loves you, and He's accepted your atonement. Part of the atonement is that He sends you suffering in order to cleanse you, in order to wipe away any scar, to heal any scar. So when you realize, you put it into perspective. I'm suffering, but you know, it's an atonement for my, for my sin, for my past deed. And every time I suffer, it's another cleansing and it's another healing. So therefore, I, therefore I'm, I don't get angry. It's like that famous, uh, it was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, and he, uh, he didn't have a happy marriage. His wife was treated him miserably, and uh, he just, you know, just wanted, it just wasn't a, a good marriage, it wasn't a happy marriage, and he suffered miserably. And Alter Rebbe told him, he said, you should know that in the previous reincarnation, you were from the, from the generation that worshipped idols. And you worshipped idols thousands of times in your life. And your soul needs an atonement. He says, and your atonement is, is every time you suffer, every time you suffer, it's, it's an atonement for another time you worship idols. <laughs> so from that time on, it changes the whole perspective. And his life was miserable. He had no life. You know, every time he walked into his house, he cringed. But now, he accepted. He said, listen, it's an atonement for my own good. So bring it on. He says, every time my wife is angry at me, or yells at me, or screams at me, it's another atonement for another misdeed that I did in my past. But when, when, you, when you have a little of a bigger perspective, then you can receive negativity. You can receive it. You know, you know that, the, that it's meaningful. You know that it serves a purpose. And you know that it's for your own benefit. Because of your, your past mistakes. You know, you create a bad energy and you have to make up for it. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't go. You have to make up for it. You have to mend it. You have to heal those scars. You created a wound in the universe. You made a scar in your soul, in heaven, in the whole universe. And every, that this inconvenience and this suffering is actually an atonement for those, for those scars that I've created through thought, speech, and action. And so when you understand it, then you're able to accept the slings of life with more equanimity, you know, without getting all so trenzled and so trenzled and relax. This humility on account of one's imperfect record is good counsel that enables a man to be immune to becoming angry or taking offense in any way. You know, instead of, if someone insults you, 
don't, don't realize it's for your own good. Not that that person, that person assaulted you, that's his problem. But the fact that I was insulted, don't get so angry. Realize it's serving a purpose. It's serving a divine purpose. And it's helping me. And it's healing me. And it's good. It's good for me. Listen, this takes a lot of maturity. <laughs> for a person to be able to receive insults that are slung in us and not lose your temper and not wanting to choke the other person and fight back. and uh, Relax. Relax. And to be able to do that takes a lot of maturity and a lot of wisdom. But the Baltruva who had his failures and he sinned and he had his breakdowns and his setbacks if he constantly keeps that in mind that will keep him humble and that will enable him to deal with all the negativity in life instead of being lost instead of he doesn't get angry he doesn't lose his temper doesn't allow himself to get insulted if someone insults him you know I deserve I I had to hear that I deserve it my ego, my arrogance, I, I need to hear that. Because I'm a little too arrogant. I'm a little too egotistical. My arrogance, the inflation is beyond the inflation rate. And um, it's out of control. So it's, it's for my own good. It takes a person of tremendous maturity and tremendous wisdom to be able to, not to allow external things to shake you up. Don't forget, when you respond in anger to someone else, you lose control. You're all shaken up. That means you're a very small person. You allow anything out there to, to, to shake you up. And it disturbs your whole peace of mind, disturbs your whole inside, is all disturbed. and You can't concentrate anymore because someone insulted me and your whole day is ruined and your whole energy is destroyed. So you're the loser. You're allowing someone else to control you and to, to, to turn your whole insides upside down. It's a very small person. It's a very tiny person. It's a very insignificant person. So a person who has that humility, a person who has my sin is, is always in the background and therefore keeps you humble, keeps you humility. It gives you strength. This strength, this gives you an inner strength. And it keeps you immune from all the slings of life. I'm not going to allow anything external to define me and to shake me up and to disturb, to disturb me off my positive Trajectory. I'm in a positive place. God has forgiven me. I'm in a good place. I'm going to allow everyone to come and and to turn the card upside down. It's in my control. I'm not going to allow that to happen. Why? Because I know that it's good for me. This is a test. This is good for me. Hashem is. This this humiliation is an atonement. It's a forgiveness. It's a. It's not nice to hear and it's not pleasant to hear, but you know it'll only make me stronger. It's for my own good. So it's very beneficial. So having the sin in my, my, my background and keeping the failure in front of me at a distance <laughs> can only strengthen me. And it's for my own good. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me real. And it keeps me evenly keeled. It keeps me balanced. It doesn't allow me to get shaken up and to lose my path. Because we're so vulnerable and so easily blown off our path. Someone comes and assaults us, and that's it, our whole day is ruined. That's just like that. We allow ourselves to be completely... But when you have this strength, you know that the sin is in front of me. And therefore, it doesn't shake me up. Someone insulted me, fine. I deserve that, I needed it. It's healthy for me. It's an atonement, it's a cleansing, it's fine not pleasant to hear I know it's not pleasant but it's good for me and then, I, then I'm, I'm not off track I'm not going to allow myself to get off center and I go forward positively joyfully so on the contrary this leads to joy having this sin in front of me leads to joy it doesn't allow me to get off track it allows me to keep centered to keep focused and to move forward optimistically and positively and hopefully knowing that I'm making progress and I'm in the good direction and I'm confident in the path that I'm taking and I can go forward constructively otherwise we just get so easily thrown off our path and everything is ruined and destroyed either through a little arrogance pride excessive pride which destroys us ruins everything or 
we allow someone else to insult us and or the slings that happen to us, anything negative that doesn't go our way, we immediately lose it and, and we lose track and we feel completely shaken up. This gives you the inner strength. It keeps you that core. Go forward. Don't worry. So you're turning the negative into positive. That sin and that failure becomes a source of strength for you. Positive. Don't allow pride to ruin your, your, your spiritual growth and success. And don't allow anything external shake, to shake you up and to throw you off your back. Keep being hopeful and optimistic and going forward and knowing it's for your good so you can handle it. Only a person with a strong inner core can handle such negativity. Because it's the, it's the hardest thing in the world to take. Someone laughs at you. Someone insults you. Someone humiliates you. Someone ridicules you. Most people, that's it. They're finished. They get all excited and it's gone. It's finished. They're, they're, they're goners. Inside, there's nobody home. They're all lost. Whatever path they're on is <laughs> goes down the tube and they're finished and their energy is gone and they're demoralized and they're, they're so... When you have that strong inner core, you don't allow anything external. So the Baal because he sinned, because he failed, he turns that around and uses that as a strength, as an anchor. Don't get too, pride, too, too proud. And keep that inner core. Someone insults you, don't get angry. Don't get angry. Don't, don't, don't get angry. Know it's for your own good. It's a cleansing, it's a healing, it's good for you. The other person has a problem, it's his problem. I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm not going to let it destroy me inside. Negative things are happening to me. It's a cleansing, it's part of the process. It means I'm going, I'm going in the right direction. Hashem is cleansing me, is washing me, and scrubbing me, putting me in the bath and the scrub, giving me a personal scrub out. So it's, it's, it's for my own good. It's good, it's good, it's fine. it's fine. Keep joyful, be joyful, be optimistic, be full of confidence. So this is what King David means. It's not about feeling demoralized and depressed and down and sad. And not on the contrary. It's a strength. This becomes a source of strength. As long as it's distant in the background, make sure it doesn't fill your life. Your life has to be filled with joy. Your life has to be filled with the fact that Hashem has forgiven you. You're confident that Hashem has forgiven you and cleansed you and washed away your sin and you're moving forward and that's but in the background you should always remember your sin continues our sages declare our sages declare those who are humiliated yet do not humiliate in turn who hear their insult and do not retort who perform out of love and are happy in affliction concerning them does scripture say those who love him shall be like the sun rising in all its might three distinct categories are mentioned here in descending order those who are humiliated yet do not humiliate in turn do respond to the insults of others but do not retaliate in kind those of the second category hear their insults and do not retort at all those of the third category actually are happy in affliction because they remember their past sins and are glad to accept their present suffering okay. as a means so, of penance. So it's three levels. The first level is those who are humiliated but do not humiliate in turn. Meaning, they respond to the insults but they don't retaliate in kind. They don't retaliate the same way they were insulted. They don't insult the other person. But they do respond. They're not indifferent to the insult. The insult hits home, and they get all excited. But they refrain from insulting the other person back. You know, it's very easy. That's what most people do, instinctively. You're going to insult me? Let me insult you. You know why you wipe the floor with me? Let me, uh, let me wipe the floor with you. You insult me in public, I'll insult you in public. That's just a natural, instinctual reaction. But here's a person, he's humiliated, but he holds himself back, and he doesn't respond in kind. 
There is a quote attributed to Mrs. Roosevelt. She said, nobody can insult you without your consent. That's mm. a, a wise, a wise, a wise saying. And the second level is, they hear their insult, but they don't retort at all. They don't even respond. They don't allow the other person to get to them. The first level, the, f- the minimal level, is a person who gets all excited. They do respond, but they refrain from insulting the other person. It's not that they don't get excited. They're very insulted. They feel insulted. and they, But they hold themselves in, and I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to lower myself to your level. It's one response. The higher level is, they hear the insult, but they don't respond at all. Internally, they don't respond. You insulted me, so what? I'm going to get excited. I'm going to allow you to disturb me and to, to, to ruin my whole... I'm having a good day. I'm not going to allow you to ruin my day. <laughs> as, right, as Mr. Roosevelt said, right? I'm not, I'm not going to allow myself to be insulted. You're only insulting yourself. You're not insulting me, you're insulting yourself. So what? It's beneath my dignity even to respond. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to get caught in your low level of existence in your life where you my life is too rich and my life is too meaningful too busy to lower myself to your level to get all excited about your insults I'm not, I'm not in that place and I don't want to go down in that place I don't want to stoop, stoop so low it's a higher level but I can't say I'm excited about it <laughs> I'm not happy about the insult the third and highest level is a person who's happy with the insult I actually am excited about it. Why, do I, why should I get excited about the insult or am I insane I'm excited because I know that this insult came from Shammai. Nothing happens in this world. You don't lift a pinky unless it's decreed in heaven. You insulted me. You're nobody. I'm nobody. I don't exist. You don't exist. All that exists is Hashem. Hashem wanted me to get insulted. It's for my own good. It's a cleansing. It's a healing. Thank you, Hashem, for accepting my tshuva and for personally cleansing me and for getting me closer to you and getting me closer to a complete healing. This is a person who rejoices, who does it with love. How is that possible? It's only because of your past sins. When you remember your past sins, and you remember that you need, you need atonement. You need a cleansing for your sins. Every sin creates a scar. If Hashem forgives you instantly, but that's not enough. To have a complete healing, you need cleansing. You need Yom Kippur, you need pain and suffering. So this is part of the cleansing process. Hashem is wiping me with harsh soap, but it's cleaning me. It's getting rid of my dirt. It's part of the cleansing. So when you remember your sin, you remember, why is this happening to me? This is happening to me because I sinned and I need a cleansing. And Hashem has accepted my tshuva and Hashem is advancing me and moving me forward and He's cleansing me. As it says in Hasidic books, it says about the soul after 120 years, that there is a case, we think that once a person leaves this world and then he goes through the cleansing processes, all the different cleansing processes, cleaning processes, because we're like a suit. A suit that gets a lot of stains on it and, you know, you, want, you have to clean that suit. So it depends on what kind of stain. Some suits are light stain, you just throw it into the... and it's done. But some suits are very thick stains and you have to sit and rub it and rub it these are all the different levels of cleansing that happen in heaven. The soul comes to this world fresh, clean, pure. But then we mess up. We behave in a certain way, and we speak in a certain way, and we think in a certain way, and we act in a certain way, and we have certain attitudes. And the more, the deeper we go into the negativity, the more we put a stain on the soul. The soul could be cleansed, just like the clothes could be cleansed, and it could be brand new. But you have to get the stain out. And the harder the stain person who lived a certain life and a lifestyle for a certain a long time the harder to get the stain out so these are the different cleansing processes that the soul has to go through after 120 years but once conventionally people think once the cleansing process is done then the soul moves on to the garden of Eden and that's it you're done with the cleansing no it doesn't work that way we wish because what happens is as you're elevated as your soul evolves and your soul continues elevated three times a day, and especially on Shabbos it makes a leap, and on a holiday it makes a leap forward, on the yard site it makes a giant leap forward, 
Now you're on a higher level. Now, what yesterday was not considered a sin, now it's considered a sin. So now it's an interference. In order for you to advance to this higher level, the behavior of yesterday suddenly becomes a new interference. I need a cleansing for this, for this behavior. Now for the new level that you're at, you need a new cleansing so the soul gets back down, the soul is sent back to get a cleansing, back to the cleaners. It needs a new cleansing. And this, this can go on and on and on. So, the fact that you remember that you had sin, David says, V'chatasi, King David says, V'chatasi, that I sin, negative summit is always before me. Because the fact that I have sinned, this explains why I have to go through a constant cleansing process. I'm having all these different sadhas that are happening to me. It's all cleansing process. Hashem is kind, Hashem is good. And it's all for my good and for my benefit. And it's just to make me more egoless and to make me more refined and to make me more godly. And it's to cleanse, to, to, to cleanse away, to clean that stain. So therefore, not only could you receive it with equanimity, but you receive it with joy. That's why David says, This leads me to joy. The fact that my sin is in front of me is not a reason to feel demoralized and depressed. On the contrary, that's a reason to feel joyful, to receive all that's happening with me and all those who insult me with joy, knowing that I'm in the right path. This affirms that I'm in the right path because Hashem is cleansing me, personally cleaning me and cleansing me, and therefore I'm advancing forward. It means I'm going forward and I'm growing and I'm in the right direction. Okay, conclude. Moreover. Moreover, whoever passes over his feelings, all his sins are passed over. Hashem is interactive. The way we treat others is the way Hashem treats us. So if we forgive others, Hashem will forgive us. If we forgive others, even if they don't deserve to be forgiven. And the truth is, even if we don't wait for them to ask for forgiveness. In the Shema, the first paragraph in the Shema, before we go to bed... We, we forgive anyone. We say, God, I forgive anyone who has insulted me, who has hurt me. I forgive them. Even if the person didn't ask me for forgiveness. I'm not going to wait for them to ask me for forgiveness. I'm not going to bear a grudge. I'm going to forgive them. We go out of our way in forgiving others. Even though they don't deserve to be forgiven, Hashem will also forgive us. So if we can receive the insults joyfully and not get excited about them and forgive them, forgive them anyway... Hashem will also forgive us and remove all negativity and will advance and move forward and get even closer to Hashem and continue in our path, our path to Hashem. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.